so good to be here this morning. We are in a series called in the book of Ecclesiastes, just going and walking through this, this book. And we began it last week, and so we'll dive into part two today. But let me update you, and I will keep you updated the best I can so that you can be in prayer for me and our church and all that. So last week, um, I updated you that we went under a contract on some property, and uh, we're praying all of that through still. A lot of things to, to work through, obviously. Um, met with a lender this past week, and so they're going to get back to us um, this week, if that's the thought. And, uh, and so be in prayer for them, that if this is God's will, that uh, that would go through. And if it isn't, then God will uh, show us very clearly. But be in prayer. That's what's happening this week as far as our pursuit towards uh, property and a final home or a place to get rooted. So be in prayer um, for us, our church, and then, of course, um, the decision as we make um, the elders and advisors are meeting today and talking about that as well. And so uh, be in prayer for our leadership, uh, for me, and, and just the whole thing, if you would, that God's will be done. I would really appreciate your prayer. So if you're going to pray uh, for us this week, would you just raise your hand so I hold you accountable? Okay, got it. All right, now don't tell me you're going to pray for me or not, so I want you to pray for us. Um, all right, so there's the update on that. And then again, group signups. I want to tell you that it's very, very important Shelly told me this week we already have a, over 100, I think 107, 110 people or something signed up already for a group, uh, which is phenomenal. So if you look around the room, we average around 140 or so or 130 adults on a Sunday. That's basically everybody but, but you if you haven't signed up. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, uh, man, groups are really important to what we do. And even if you can't attend every week, um, then just be a part of one. Show up and, when you can. And so they're, they're, all that's online, or you can sign up tables, I think, are still in the back, or you can uh, do that online. But I encourage you to be a part of a group this season. Amen? All right. So if you have your sermon notes, you can grab those out. Hopefully you got some when you walked in. If you do not have sermon notes and you want sermon notes to follow along, lift your hand and someone will bring someone to you if we haven't run out of them. Um, so um, if you have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. As we begin today, I want to go back uh, for a moment to a key verse, and this verse really helps us understand the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes, and the whole teaching of this, I want you to really try to extract as much as you can from this book study, and so I want to read it again to really put it into our hearts and our minds, uh, to get our hearts there, to like understand this again and kind of go back um, through this, this book. Um, that God wants to teach us through in Ecclesiastes. And so I'll go there. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. We read this last week. We're going to read it again today. Scripture says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. So if you remember chapters 1 and 2, the author is in a debate with himself that this text is where Solomon, likely the author, is debating with himself, and he's a preacher, so he's speaking, he's speaking to an assembly of people, and he's essentially inviting you in to listen to his debate that he's having, and this argument with himself that he's having, trying to find out this meaning to life with and without God. And that's where we began in chapters 1 and 2. And we saw last week that he tries out wisdom, that maybe the point of life is just to extract as much wisdom as you can, get as wise as you can, accumulate knowledge and power. And he tries that out, but he realizes it's all meaningless. It doesn't work. It's all hebel was the word. 
And so then he tries pleasure, he tries money, he tries fame, he tries buying everything his heart desires. Remember last week, last week we talked about that, he even had, he had jet skis and boats and cabins and mountains and all these things, like he had everything he wanted as a man, and yet nothing satisfied his soul. That was the issue. Now, I want you to know, because this is so important as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, that you have to understand you have a soul. You ever wonder, how do you know for sure that a person has a soul? The question comes down to pain. The best question I have found ever asked to help you understand what your soul is, have you ever had pain in your life that wasn't physical? Raise your hand. Ever experienced any pain that wasn't physical? Where did it hurt? And most of us would say, well, here. Where's here? That is your soul, right? So we have these souls, and he's like, I'm trying to satisfy this soul with all these things, but nothing's working. That's the context of chapters one and two. So a couple of quick takeaways from last week, just to bring you on the same page. Recap chapter one and two. Everything under the sun is temporary and does not satisfy. That's the takeaway. Under the sun, that is where you are currently living now. Everything under the sun does not satisfy. Doesn't matter how big your house is, doesn't matter how many cars you own, how many houses you own, how big your retirement account is, ultimately it's not enough. You're always desiring more. It doesn't satisfy. He says it's like chasing the wind. It's all hebel. It doesn't work. Without an eternal perspective, everything is meaningless. This is a huge part of the book that eternal perspective, I'm going to talk about that again today, but all through this book, you'll see eternal perspective that really matters. Without heaven, it's all hebel, in other words. And then thirdly, I said to you that a life without God is no life at all. That's openly his arrival, that if you have life without God, without an eternal perspective, this whole thing is pointless. This is what he concludes in his debate. And so today in chapter 3 is where we'll pick up. It says, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, right out of, you remember the movie? Footloose, remember that argument? Okay, anyways, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away. Come on, all of my keepers. There is a time to throw away, right? A time to tear, a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. In the 1960s, there was a band called The Birds. Remember them? Yeah, remember the song, Turn, 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 originally titled, For Every Season, right? There is a season, to everything there is a season. In fact, what's crazy is in 1965, this is kind of just think about this, it was number, war, number one on the billboard charts, and it was scripture. Think about how far we've come in the name of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing how the world changes, you know? That just certainly can help. Man, number one? Bible verses, and what a different world, right? Ultimately, here's what he is saying. All such things, all the things that he's mentioned are ultimately determined by the will of God. Now, I want to just bring up a couple of the highlighted words I put up there, you know, a time to kill, and you're like, what? 
How could that be? Listen, there is a dead plant. My wife thinks it's alive right now in our back patio. This morning, we prayed together. We held hands. We had some coffee, and we prayed together. And I turned to this tree, and I said, the tree has to go. It's dead. She says, no. Look, it's got a new leaf. And I'm like, that thing is dead. There's a time to kill, right? There's just a time to kill sometimes. Let it go. What he is saying is, and there's argument on this, is he talking about people? I don't think so. I think there's a time to kill, though. There's a time to kill things, right? You ever seen a cockroach in your room? No, man, let them live. There is a time kill them, right? I think his point here, and you could debate, is it kill, is it this, when, this, war, all of these things, but ultimately... What he is saying is, as he's looked ever into the sun, all of these things that happen are ultimately determined by the will of God. They happen, I watch them happen, I've seen them happen, and they're determined by the will of God. There's a time for growth. The author ultimately is not trying to ask himself, when is the time? In other words, when is the proper time to do this and that? That's not what he's after. He's just trying to acknowledge as he observes the world that he lives in, all these things do happen under heaven. And the key to understanding these verses, and the reason why I say that, is because what comes next. It's really important to read the context. So here's the verses that come next. He says, I know, I know, he says, that there is nothing better for people than to be happy, do good, while they live. Now, remember, that is not like just drink up and be merry. That's not what he's talking about. We touched on that last week. Verse 13, he says that each of them may eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their work or labor or toil. This is the key part that I want you to see. This is very important when you study the scripture that you like read its entirety. He says, this is the gift of God. There's, that's big. If you could like underline that and circle like that and highlight, that's a really important statement in this text. All this is a gift from God is what he's arriving at, verse 14. Then he says, big, powerful verse. I know, he says. I'm not questioning if this is true. He he knows. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. All right, so let's unpack that. If you have your notes, just write this in. The lesson that we're arriving at from the first couple of verses in chapter 3 is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Everything God does will endure forever, he writes. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away. God's sovereignty simply means his absolute authority, unrestricted supremacy. He is in charge of it all. Everything that happens is at the very least a result of what he has allowed to occur. You can question what he allows to occur, but ultimately it comes down to it is his permissive will. Nothing that happens on this planet doesn't go through his fingertips. I've said that everything that happens in the physical is preceded by what happens in the spiritual. Everything. Now you can question why he lets certain things happen, 
why he hasn't, you know, fulfilled this dream in yours yet that you've had, but he does it for your, you know, buddy or your, your family member, and they're such, you know, a horrible person, and yet he keeps blessing them, and you are over here struggling. You know, you can argue with God all you want about why things happen the way they happen, but ultimately, his arrival is, I have to acknowledge he is the one in charge. He is supreme. Everything is a result of his will. Ultimately, his will will prevail, he says. Regardless of what happens, his will will be accomplished. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, he will finish what he starts. Nothing can stand in his way. It is how he can take all things deemed for evil and turn them for his good, our good, his glory. When God sees time, he sees eternity. I brought in a large yarn. It's in the back. Don't worry about bringing it to me. Um, actually, bring it to me if you can. In my backpack, in the very back, I bring in a bag and there's a big yellow bright. Yeah, bring that to me. So I want to illustrate this to you. And I have used this illustration before about how God sees time. And I think it helps illustrate um, how we see time and how God sees time things. So when God sees time, right, he sees literally all of time. Let me get like really long. Eternal perspective, right? Like it just keeps on going. This is what he, when he sees time, this is what he sees. Eternity. Eternity. And I'm going to show you where you are in his perspective of time. Now, I know you think you know, man, you're going to live a long life. Like, man, I'm going to, I want to live a long life. What's a long life? A hundred. All right, man. I mean, I'm telling you, man, this is long life. That hundred years, according to this, is really, really long, you know, because in humanity's eyes, we think a hundred years, that's a long time. How many are like, mm, I'd rather go home before I'm a hundred? Anybody like me? Okay. I'm good around 90. That's what I've told God. Like, eh, you start breaking down, I'm good. Um, when God sees time, are you getting the illustration here? Now, this is where you are, okay? We'll go a little faster. This is you. Do you see that right there? That is you. Actually, that's your generation right there. When he sees time, he sees something completely different than you see. He sees the whole thing. So, what he does in this time, he does based on what happens throughout all of history. That's why he doesn't have time to explain to you what he's doing. Because if he tried to explain it to you, he told a guy named Habakkuk, man, you wouldn't understand if I told you, do you realize how long the story would be if I have to explain this to you, how this all works together and the concept of time? Anybody ever get frustrated with God's timing? That's because you don't think like this. You think in your little bitty brains like this. 
Oh my gosh, I offended you. Yes, you have a small brain. It's the size of your two fists, so it's pretty small. In comparison to the universe, your brain is not large. Because it's how God sees things. This is the author's point. God is sovereign over all of time. And he has this, write this into your notes. He has an eternal perspective. Actually, we'll get there in just a minute. But he has eternal perspective. Write this into your notes, key truth. When we live knowing God is sovereign, we live life as a gift, something to enjoy, not endure. I'll speed it up a little bit. The point of the illustration is to show you, we'll come to this in a minute, that God has an eternal perspective. He sees the whole thing. But what I want you to understand is that the author is arriving at this place of saying that life is a gift from God. It's not something to endure. It's something we can enjoy because everything that happens over the span of time in our lives is ultimately through God's hands. We can trust that he can work it out for his good because we know ultimately whatever he does through us and in us will ultimately conclude in one result, his will being accomplished and his will is always good. So there's a trust element there. Write this into your notes if you would. Next, that God desires all to know him. It says, so that people will fear him. The word fear is, of course, the word reverence. This is a great motivating factor to surrender to the creator of the universe. For the unbeliever, now listen very closely, the fear of God is the fear of judgment, of God and eternal death. Make no mistake about it, there is an eternal death. And if you're not a believer, his point here is you should fear God and eternal judgment and death, which is ultimately separation from God. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you fear God? For the unbeliever, he's saying you should. He's powerful. He's massive. He's in control of all things. Now, to the believer, it's something different. In fact, it's much different. The believer doesn't have to fear God, and rather he has reverence for God, an acknowledgement, not just of who he is, but also knowing to understand how, allowing that understanding to impact how we live, to knowing that God is sovereign, he is over all things, and so I can live underneath that security of blanket to know that he is in charge, that God is good. What the author was affirming here is that man's successes and wealth and happiness, all things are not finally in the hands of any man but the will of God. In every case, it's vital and determining factor. Goes on to write in verse 15, whatever has already been, what will be has been done before. He says, and God will call the past to account. It's very important. He'll call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun in the place of judgment. Wickedness was there. In the pl- palace of justice, wickedness was there too. Verse 17, he says, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time For every activity, a time to judge every deed. Solomon says ultimately that God is keeping track of the time. Later on in verse 12 through 14, he would write, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Write this into your notes. God will one day call us to account 
for what we did with our time. Do you know God keeps track of time? How you spend your time, what you did with your time, every deed will be accounted for. God pays attention to how we manage our time. The time is the most valuable resource you have because we're always losing it and you can never regain it. So how are you spending your time? This is his understanding. God is over time. He sees time. Everything that happens is according to his will. He is sovereign and he's going to give account. I'm going to have to give an account being that he's debating with himself to this God who will one day judge and give account how I've handled my time here. He sees it. So he makes this conclusion from this, that God, this is where it is, has an eternal perspective. That's why the preacher, the guy who's saying this to the assembly, as he shares this debate with his audience, wants the audience to pay attention to what he's saying about God. God has an eternal perspective. He sees the whole thing. Have you ever had a conversation with your kids? And they go, why? And then you tell them why, and then they, you explain the why, and then you... And they say, well, why? And then you tell them again, and then they say, well, why? And then you keep explaining it until eventually you go, it doesn't matter why, just do it. Just do it. Anybody ever been there and just get frustrated? I don't want to explain it to you. I tried. You know, you're six. You're not going to get it. Right? You're 13. You're not going to get it. You're 19. You're still not going to get it. So this is God sometimes with us. I, I can't explain it to you. You don't understand it. Just do it, right? God has an eternal perspective. Imagine how you would talk. Now watch this. This is his point, what he's going to drive at. This is our eternity, okay? Imagine how you would speak during your little time here if this is the perspective that you had on life. How would you spend your dollars if eternity was real? I mean, I know that we live in this little dot, and we think this little dot, gosh, you know, but in the context of eternity, his point is, if we don't have an eternal perspective, this whole thing is pointless. Then you should just be born and do what the heck you want and die. He's like, no, inviting to an eternal perspective. How would you spend your time if, you had this perspective if you lived with eternity in mind. Did you know the Bible says there's inheritance waiting for us in heaven? I've spoken about this before a few weeks back. If you have an eternal perspective, then you know there's a bank account, if you would, in heaven. That when you invest in the kingdom of God, there's treasures that get stored up for you in heaven, is what Jesus said. Why store your treasures here on earth where everything is going to fade away one day when you could store treasures in heaven? So if you have an eternal perspective, which bank account matters more? That is his driving at. What's your perspective? An earthly perspective, a worldly perspective, or eternal perspective? Would you rather have a treasure forever or like a treasure like right here, but it's really fun, it's awesome, you know? 
His point is, no, look, eternal perspective. Do you believe that? This is his understanding that life without God is no life at all. Number two, God's timing is perfect. He understands that everything that God does is according to his will and it's perfect timing. God's timing is perfect, and he asks you of two things and me of two things. Two words. You can write this in on the side somewhere. Trust and cooperation. You trust his timing, and will you cooperate with his timing? He's going to invite you at some point in your life to trust his timing and come into cooperation with his timing, to invite you into the journey. And here's why this matters and helpful to know. When we understand that God is sovereign, he's got an eternal perspective, his timing is perfect, this is what it drives down to. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I think he's driving at something in this book. It seems clear to me as I read through Ecclesiastes, there is something he's becoming aware of. There are two ways of living. You can write this into your notes. You can be God-centered or self-centered. Now, he's tried self-centeredness and pleasure and money and wisdom and power and fame. This is King Solomon, wealthiest man to live. He's got everything his heart desires. He's lived in self-centeredness. Self-centeredness, in case you don't know, is when you are at the center. You are self-centered. None of you are self-centered, I know, but you know someone who is. Amen? His conclusion is, God-centered or self-centered? And if I live self-centered, it's all pointless. I, one day I will be forgotten. Everything I've worked so hard for will fall away into someone else's hands to be enjoyed. Remember that? I worked so many 40-hour, 50-hour, 60-hour work weeks. I got six-figure salaries coming in, seven-figure salaries coming in. I purchased all these things. Then I die. Then my great-grandkids have fun on my boat. And then they trash it. Treat it, beat it up, burn it. What's the point of it? This is his arrival conclusion. No, I should live with an eternal perspective. Store up treasures in heaven where I can enjoy the labor that I had on earth. If not, what's the point? This is his conclusion. Self-centered, God-centered. When Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil... It was a decision to be in charge of their own life. Anybody want to be in charge of your own life? Yes. Yes, you have since you were three. And then when you were 13, it really like ramped up. Because all of us said when we were 13, I can't wait until I'm 18. Look at you. See, you rehearsed it. Everybody did it. When I'm 18, I will be in charge of my own life. And then all the parents now on this side of the whole thing is like, you have no idea what you're talking about. But this all began in a garden when you wanted to be in charge of your own life, your own money, your own dollars, your own plan, your own purpose, your own things. This is why we live this way, because of what happened in the garden. There was a separation between humanity and God. And as a result, they were left to go about their days without clear direction. Because they no longer lived in light of God's plan and path. It was a constant eternal desire to do what we want when we want. 
This all began in a garden through something we use and call sin. Solomon has lived both ways, a desire to please God and a desire to please himself. And he realizes when he lives self-centered, it's all meaningless. So he invites his listeners in to live God-centered. God at the center of my life. And when God is at the center of my life, then I have an eternal perspective. And everything I do impacts eternity. And every deed will be accounted for. So he invites people in to live this way. And you say, why would I want to live God-centered and not self-centered? Because self-centeredness is so much fun. Okay, you should try it out for like a week. Just put yourself above everybody else. It's going to be a lot of fun if you do it right. Do you disagree? Try it out. How many of you have ever tried out self-centeredness and thought that was a lot of fun? I put me above someone else. None of you have ever tried out self-centeredness. What is up with you guys, man? You guys are just like, seriously, you think it's rhetorical. I want to know. If you've ever tried out to be self-centered in your life, you've ever just put yourself above somebody else, Raise your hand. You've ever put yourself above somebody else. Self-centeredness. You put yourself above someone else. You just did what you want when you wanted. Yeah. It's awesome. Because life becomes about you. You know? Have you ever cut in line? Have you ever been driving in a long, like the right-hand lane? It's really long. And you're like, eh, I'm trying to speed up, get there. And so you pass 98 cars, you know, you're like, you're idiots, you know, you're waiting in a long line, why don't you just do what I do, watch this, and then right before, you know, the exit, come on, you get over, and then you look in the rearview mirror, have you ever done this and gone, idiots, you know, you're still waiting, and I'm cruising at 75 on the highway, anybody ever done something like that, yeah, see, there's a lot of you. And then every once in a while, you decide to be righteous and holy. You're like, today, I'm going to wait in the line. And then you see me right, right by you. Wait a minute. You know, it's like, and you can kind of look in the side mirror, and you go, you know, today is not the day for holiness and righteousness. I'm moving on. Man, you put yourself first. It works out. Man, it feels great. Man, self-centeredness. What he concludes, though, is if you live this way, your soul won't be satisfied. You're going to crave more, desire more, and it'll never be enough. Write this into your notes. This is the takeaway. When we live according to God's will, he's God-centered. This is his arrival. Because all through the Ecclesiastes, you see the word hebel in Hebrew, meaningless. When you live according to God's will, we live a meaning-filled life. There's meaning to it. There's purpose to it. It's not meaningless. Life's not meaningless life. Like, you don't live a meaningless life. You live a meaning-filled life. When you live with eternal perspective, it's a meaning-filled life. When I put God at the center and God directs and shapes my path in life, I have meaning and purpose to my life. When I live self-centered, there is no meaning and purpose to my life because at some point when it's about me, it'll die. But with God, it endures forever. So if I put myself into his hands, if I put my plan into his hands, it goes on forever into eternity. When our plates are filled 
with things we feel like we have to do. You ever been there? Man, my plate is full. I don't know how much more I can take on my plate. And you live this way. We live this way. Rather than the things we're called to do. Many of us today, I think many people live plates filled with all kinds of things that we feel like we have to do. But how much on that plate is what you're called to do? That's the whole point. I heard this line in a book, a great book called Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. It said, the greatest trick of the enemy is to steal your time. Get you to waste your time. Much time is being wasted by things you think are important, but in eternity, not. We slave away, we work so hard. And for what, the author writes, without God, meaninglessness. With him, meaning-filled life, a life of purpose that endures forever. Would you rather have an eternal impact on the world that you live or no impact that ultimately gets forgotten and fades away? Yes, one day Tom Brady too will be forgotten. And the Super Bowl champions will one day be forgotten. You know? I mean, one day, things will fade. The billions of dollars spilt on stadiums will one day come crumbling down. That is a fact. Many of billions of your tax dollars will one day turn to dust again. His argument, what a miss. When all of that could have been stored in heaven. Eternity. I think his encouragement is to live a meaning-filled life. When you work for the Lord, the satisfaction does not come from what you do. It comes from who you do it for. God has you here for a reason, and I wrote this in my notes, and I think you're here today to hear this. Some of you, if anything, like some of you need to hear this. God has you here for a reason. One, to glorify him. And he wants you to know there's something for him that he wants to do through you to advance his kingdom. When you work for you, money, retirement, all of that, it's meaningless because it'll all fade away one day. But when you work for the Lord, it lasts forever. Who do you want to work for? Who are you here for? God or you? The invitation is to live for God. God at the center. That is a fact. That is the truth. You are either God-centered or you are self-centered. There is no in-between. Who are you living for? This is his arrival. 
So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a question. How can you know if you're living a God-centered life or a self-centered life? Well, just ask your neighbor. They'll tell you. If you're married, go ahead. Have the conversation. No, don't do that. (laughs) Here's a great question that I believe can help you determine whether or not you are God-centered or self-centered. If you want to begin to live God-centered, then just start asking this question every single day. Here's the question. God, what would you have me do now? Man, just think about living your life with that question. Because when you ask that question every day, God becomes at the center and the self kind of goes out to the outside. Like, no longer about me. Because you start with, God, what do you want me to do now? What do you want me to do today? Where do you want me to go? What job do you want me to take? Who do you want me to talk to? What deal should I say yes to and no to? God, what would you have me do now? If you can learn to ask that question, what makes that question so incredibly powerful is every time you ask it, you're putting God back into the center of your life. And then you do the really, really easy part. Do what he says. And then if you don't, well then that's where self-centeredness can come into play again. And Paul would say that's where you'll find this wrestle self-centered and God-centered. And Solomon would say, man, I've tried both, and I'm telling you, God-centered is so much better. Because God-centered is the only way of living that can satisfy the soul. Because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, because God has put eternity in your soul. So nothing under the sun can satisfy you. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. There's a time for everything under heaven. God is in charge, but don't waste your time. Don't live for you, live for God. That's the invitation of Ecclesiastes 3. And know when life comes your way, life happens, look up and say, God, you're sovereign. You're God. I trust you. What would you have me do now? This is the invitation of Ecclesiastes 3. Would you pray with me? Jesus, what do you want me to do now? Would you ask him that? What does he want you to do? Maybe for some of you, it's like, man, just come back. You need to, you need to get involved, right? Like, yeah, I just need to show up, get back into church, you know? Read your Bible. I don't mean, there's so many things. Take that job, leave that job, make the change, whatever. Go forgive that person, give that person a hug, say hello, have the conversation. All right, I'm going to give you a second to listen to him. All right? Just ask him, what do you want me to do now?
God-centered life. We see that there's value living for you. What value is it? You said, if we gain the whole world and lose our soul, what have we gained? Nothing. Maybe today you, uh, you do live for yourself. Everything you do is about you and your children, your future, your retirement, your hopes, your dreams, your plans, and your life ultimately centered around you. Today's the day you can change that. You can make a decision today. Say, God, I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for you. I want to surrender my life to you and put you at the center of my life. After hearing the word spoken, it makes sense. Today, you want to make a decision to put God at the center of your life. Lift your hand right where you are. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Hand Hand up. All right, we got a minute here. If your hand was lifted, would you stand right where you are for a minute? Andrews, would you just leave? There's a song called Jesus at the Center, and I asked him to sing a little bit of this song because if you had your hand lifted, you know, you don't have to everybody stand, but if you feel like God's nudging you here, and just declare these words as Andrew sings these words. And would you sing a few lines from Jesus at the Center? Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to Jesus, for some of you today, you lifted your hand, and I see many of you standing today. 
just tell them, God, come on, let's pray this together. Just say, God, today, I'm putting you at the center. Today is the day I'm coming home. You need to hear that today. You're just coming back home. God has not changed. Jesus, be the center of my life. Amen. Can we celebrate that today? Man, so good. You guys can be seated for just a minute. Hey, today we know we said that prayer, but here's an encouragement. We'll have an altar team, a prayer team, if you can come down front. Let me just say this to you today. And this is the most important part of the whole gathering. So please lean in on this. Don't check out too early. Just one second. I know for some of you today, today was a coming back home, a recommitting, putting God back in the center of my family, putting God back in the center of my finances, putting God back in the center of whatever you know, decision you're making. For some of you today, you should come home to Jesus for the first time. Enter into relationship with Jesus. Recommit your life to Jesus. Find the truth about Jesus. Grab a Bible that maybe you don't have or don't understand or you want to get involved, you want to get plugged in. There's a step you know you need to take, and today is that day. We're dismissed in a few minutes. I'm telling you, you're going to feel the tug. You know you need to go get prayed for. You know you need to have a conversation real fast with one of our leaders up here and just tell somebody, hey, I want to come to know Jesus. Hey, I want to give my life to God, or hey, I want to recommit, or hey, I want to get involved. Would you just pray with me on this? Or you need prayer for something else, like just something else going on in your life. Here's what's going to happen. We dismiss. It happens every week. You're going to be tempted to be like, ah, I'll go next week. That's because the enemy does not want you to be free today. Today is the day of freedom. Today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait to be free. Why? It's been one more week. Self-centered living. It doesn't work. Make today that day. And we're dismissed. I don't care how long you have to wait in line. Wait. Take a couple minutes. The kids are okay. All right? They're fine. Hey, next week we'll be back for part three of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter four and five. And so I'm excited about that. And uh, we'll be back next week. Um, if you are here for the first time, we'd love for you to fill out that first time guest card. Make sure you do that. Drop that off at Brave Central. There's also a Brave Steps card in your envelope. You can check one of those boxes. Come in and hand it in. We want to be here to help you take your next day, your next step as you, you know, walk in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And lastly, if Brave has been a blessing to you, would you tell somebody about it? Would you bring someone back next week? If you experience the love of God today, then bring somebody back with you. Amen? All right, we're going to end every week this way. We're going to put the blessing on the screen. If you could put it up, we'll all read it together. Do you have that? Everybody can read it because I don't know if they haven't memorized yet. Catch you off guard. We're going to wait for the blessing. Let's stand to our feet. As they, do they have it? No? If you don't, just say, no, I don't. And then I'll just have to say it. Oh, there it is. All right. Ready? Everybody read together. Come on. The Lord bless you and keep you. Mate. Come on. You can read. That's good.
good. That's how we're going to end every week. So get used to it, okay? Hey, I love you guys. Take care. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you later.